Jebediah Gardner is the CEO of On Point Real Estate, located in Post Alley behind the iconic Pike Place Market in Seattle. He holds a JD from Western Michigan Cooley Law School. We discuss his upbringing, insights on entrepreneurship, and what he's building next. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are, and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. If your life were a movie or a book, what would the title be? My life were a movie or a book? Wow, yeah, I might have to take some time with that one. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Man, that can go in a million different ways. Yeah. I think I think it would it a part of the title would have to be volume one. Okay. Whatever uh whatever the actual It's a long story. It's a long story. Okay. At least I think so. I'm a I'm a fan of details. Mm. And you know, details can make stories, so you know, there's a lot of details in, in this journey. You know, so I'm not sure. I didn't think about that. Do you know what the opening scene would be? The opening, wow. Wow, the opening (laughs) scene. Man, okay, I got to get prepared for Dominique (laughs) out here. The opening scene, I would say, I don't know, I'm going back and forth. It'll be be maybe a montage of images of farmers in Mexico Mm. and... And then going on on the other continent, going to Africa, and an imagery of village life in Africa. Because I'm black and Mexican. Yeah. I, I I don't know how else I would start that story off other than trying to bombard people with what it means to be an Afro Latino, Black Mexican, you know, Black Mexican, all the Af- you know all the terms. All right, all right. So I think I'd start it off with letting people know uh, that you know when when you kind of first open your eyes. I see the world in a very interesting, different lens, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm black, but I'm also Mexican. Right. You know, so what does that mean? So I would start the movie off ASAP, like, yo, life in Mexico, life in Africa, and then how the hell do those two things come together? Absolutely. <laughs> how do, and so and so speaking of, how do those things come together for you? You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, you know? I'm, I mean, from the from the historical perspective mm. in the sense of you and your, of, your, of your family. Yeah, so it's interesting. So my, you know, my family. So I know so much. I have a rich family background um, that derives from Mexico. Okay, and and we have that that history. And I'm so lucky. My grandfather t- took crazy, crazy uh, notes and and has a great memory. You know, and the, our story from Africa. I mean, it gets limited, right? We right, can only absolutely. go so so far back. But in regards to my Mexican heritage, you know, I can go back to the early 1800s to like my three great grandfathers. And so how that started was essentially this this native of Mexico, like an indigenous person, basically kind of had a one night stand with a, with, a, with a Mexican woman and bounced, fled off. And she then had one. She didn't have my great great grandfather. They grew up in a small town in Chihuahua, Mexico, what we call the Pueblo, which is like a tiny, tiny town. My grandma, my great great grandmother, she and she and her small little town would cook food and tortillas for Pancho Villa's men, mm-hmm. and Pancho Villa was revolutionary mm-hmm. up north. So the you know the the, uh, the revolutionaries would run in and they would look to look to their little town to hide. She make them food. My great my great great grandfather got shot by the by the federales and got killed because he was 
trying to, you know, hide hide the rebels. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of filtered up to, to Texas. And then my great grandfather was born. And then from Texas to Arizona, my grand, you know. And so it's this interesting long history. And we got pictures that are in black and white. I got pictures of my great great grandfather laid out with with my great grandfather by his side as a kid. Wow. And it's a picture of him, you know, deceased. You know, after he got shot by the feds, wow. trying to trying to hide out the rebels. So that history is deep, and I hold yeah. on to it because it, it really. I mean, I look at the work that we're doing today, you know, and, and being you know, more of a business activist. Right. That kind of revolutionary gene hasn't left. You know, yeah. it's somehow kind of just <laughs> stuck yeah. around. Yeah. And then you go to the African American side, and we can go so far as back as you know a plantation in Tennessee, and a plantation in Mississippi. Wow. And then after that, I mean, before that, it's 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 a crapshoot. I mean, you know, twenty three and me, yeah, we're like X percentage Nigerian, and but we don't have any ties, right? I right. can't go back and say I have pictures of my great 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 grandfather in Nigeria right. from this tribe, and so you kind of push put those two histories together, and they're more it's more common than not, right? Because Mexicans own half the United States at one point, right? right? And and then you know when things turned around, the United States essentially you know ran them out you know the united states government ran the mexicans out of mexico and actually tried to take over much of mexico and and then they were like well we'll we'll bring you back we'll bring you back to the united states but it's going to be this program called the bracero program where you'll come and you'll work for a few hours or a few days or a few months but then you got to go send your ass back you know and this is like wow like so disrespectful so You know the history of oppression with with Mexican culture and Af- African culture, African American culture is, you know, to me it's like I, I come from two a lineage of two oppressed peoples, and that's amazing because it gives me so much strength. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So when we met up to talk about you being on the podcast, it was at your short talks. Yes. Do you mind sharing the story of your grandmother? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't mind. I mean, I put it out there yeah. in front of a couple hundred people anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I figured that that kind of let the cat out the bag. Yeah, yeah it's, an, it's an emotional story. It's something that I, I never told. The story I told was uh, when I was about five years old, 1987. I was living in Spokane with my father at the time and uh, his parents. Mm-hmm. So my dad lived with his mom and, and his dad. And, and it was crazy because we were the black family that actually had some things in Spokane. Had a nice big ass crib in Spokane. I was born in San Antonio, Texas. A lot of people don't know that. I was there just maybe a year as an infant, and then my parents moved to Spokane. My grandmother owned a salon. She owned a couple salons in Spokane, and it's crazy because you can still, if you Google her, you'll still you'll pull up. There's there's this um, Spokane Black Pioneers book that someone did back in the day, and they have her in there. And uh, she was essentially, you know, one of the only and first, you know, African-American women who owned her own salon. And she had three shops in Spokane in the 60s, 60s and 70s and 80s. And she was the first real entrepreneur. She was the go-to, you know, people get their hair done, black folks, man. It's a, it's a space for gossip. Yeah. So a lot of the black community in Spokane uh, really filtered through her shop. Mm-hmm. And she first started in, at home, you know, she's... She, did people's hair at the house and then she grew and 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 got a couple shops and it ended up being three shops she closed down one and had two on east sprague street still debating about getting a tattoo on east sprague so i'll just tell the story I, and i left out a lot of details in our yeah. talk because i was already talking hella long yeah and so i i, I was just like oh man let me not let me just try to condense this story mm. as much as possible but essentially it was one of my first memories and i remember waking up i was sleeping on the couch in the living room 
and I wake up and there was tons of my family members sitting in front of me. Actually, back up before that, my granddaddy asked me to call, you know, call your grandmommy, call your grandmommy. And he dialed the phone for me. And I remember um, in one of those, you know, one of the rotary phones. And I remember um, he was like, call your grandma, she should be home by now. And I get this beep, beep, beep. You know, granddaddy, she's not picking up. Called her a couple times. I go to sleep, wake up, and, you know, my granddaddy, my dad, my aunt, her husband, my cousin, just my family were just sitting on the couch and they were all looking at me. And I remember getting up and not knowing what was going on. And I remember, I think my, it was my auntie, she was, she was um, trying to, trying to verbalize what, what had happened. And my Uncle BB just kind of buttered out, Grandmommy, your grandmommy's dead. And uh, my auntie hit him like, BB, don't say it like that. It's one of those vivid memories. And uh, I still don't know what that means. The next morning, you know, we go to her barbershop or her salon on East Sprague. And my dad walks me up the steps, the concrete steps, and this mini patio to the right, steel door. And you walk in, and I just remember seeing a trail of blood. And, you know, you look to your right, and there's her kind of hair stools, the hair dryers. And then there's a hallway. And I just remember seeing this trail of blood. I just started crying. I didn't really know what it was. Fast forward, you know, it was like a big blur, and all of a sudden we're at the funeral. You know, my dad's holding me on his arms, and uh, we walk up to her casket. It was an open casket, and I remember seeing her lay there, and, you know, five, right? And and I'm just staring down, and I just remember turning away, like, crying, like, just, just immediate, just turning away, crying. But before I did that, like, I, I felt, I just felt something from her jump into me it was a I, it was one of those weird things like can't really explain it it's just kind of i don't know like i'm not trying to be all extra like spiritual and mm. you know esoteric and but it was one of those moments where for me as a, as a kid i look back and i'm like something definitely happened like something definitely attached to me when when, she, when, when i made eye contact with her body and and i remember turning away crying and you know, come to find out, she was, you know, she was stabbed 52 times in her own shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandma, she was a, a, an activist. She, she, her, her shop was a place where homeless people, uh, particularly a lot of the prostitutes, they would run to her shop and hide out from the pimps. Um, and, and homeless people would come and, and, and seek some type of solace or, or a little bit of food or something. And so she, her space was a really welcoming space for, for the most neglected people in Spokane. Mm. So a lot of people got had mad love for my grandmommy because she was looking out for the community. Right, right. You know? And so she, she ran for city council, city council in Spokane in, in 87. She lost. And it was days after she lost when she was murdered. Wow. And, I, you know, like, the thing is, it's the murder's unsolved, you know, and the police came in and they tried to pin it on this um this black hair salon dude who came who flew in from he like traveled from tennessee worked in her shop he was black he was gay and they try to say that he was the one who did it he ended up two weeks later committing suicide jumping out of a window apartment building in spokane so i'm like well okay well all right i don't know what that means (laughs) and it was just all of these things that were happening that didn't make any sense and then a week after a week after they uh you know, her murder, her shop burns down, completely burns down. Wow. All evidence, all everything gone. You know, and so for me, you know, I, I look at that and I'm like, 
first of all, how do you staff someone 52 times? Right. Like, how do you do that? And then, like, secondly, that had to be a hate crime. You have to hate somebody. Absolutely. You got to hate somebody to just keep, like, stabbing them. Like, what? And so, part of what I was mentioning at the ARC talk is I wanted people to feel the emotion because I do think about it is, you know, when that when that person decided to take her life and they started the process of stabbing her, at what point, at what stab wound did her body actually decide to go mm-hmm. you know how much pain does she endure mm-hmm. and and her being a black woman in america her being a, a an entrepreneur a businesswoman her own shop you know she was solo solo dolo on her own twos and she died like that mm-hmm. you know she went out solo and so she's a warrior to me you know it's just one of those stories where i can't get too deep because i was like start crying it's mm-hmm. just just every time because you know, it's, it's it's my grandmommy, you know, mm. and I wish I wish I could know her more. I wish I can ask her questions. And it's crazy. I feel just so much more closer than her. And I only knew her technically five years of my life. Right. Mm. But I feel so connected to her. Mm. I feel her presence every single day, you know. And so that's a part of the driver is knowing that if she can go through that mm-hmm. and make the mark. And here's what's crazy. is So after, you know, she passed and the shop burns down and all this drama, they, um, they have this funeral for her, and there's this picture um, that, that that was in the uh, like Spokane Times or something, and it was a packed house. It was flooded. It was this picture of people just, there was too many people. The church couldn't even hold all the people, and it was a big church. It wasn't like a tiny church. I think it was about, I think it was Calvary in Spokane, and it was just floods of people outside, and you know, the governor even quoted governor. I forget his first name, but the governor's name at the time was Gardner. His last name was Gardner. He quoted Sarah Gardner was a pillar in the community, and this and this is a tragic loss. I'm like, how did? Why is the governor commenting on a murder in Spokane? Like, right. how did he know my grandma? I mean, so I don't even know what she had her hands in, right? Like, I don't even know the extent of work she was actually doing. So it's it's a big motivator and driver for me. If she was able to accomplish that and get through that. That, that severe pain I carry that pain as motivation you know and and so I never forget I never forget you know like it I don't know it's just it's it's one of those things where because that happened it's like I've had everything taken from me you know I've got property I've lost property um, family members like it's, it's there's not much you can take from me where I'm gonna really kind of emotionally distraught about it (laughs) because the pain tolerance is so high that I'm like yo well this is we're just gonna have to deal with this absolutely you know so I'm ready for war basically right and thank well first of all yes absolutely (laughs) I'm ready for war absolutely thank you for thank you so much for for even sharing this story no I Um, I appreciate a space to to share That's, that's 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 Honestly, man, you creating the space to share is, is really, really important. Absolutely. So I, I really value and appreciate the work that you all are doing to create space for us as people of color to, to, to even share this. You know, it's 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 medicating and self-healing, you Absolutely. know, and so I'm really thankful for the opportunity. So it goes both um, ways. And so what did what did your parents do? Let's see. So my biological mother, and I say that because she's my biological mother. That's a whole. Nother, that's why I said okay. it's a volume. Okay. The book is a volume. A volume. That's a whole yes. other situation. This might be a part two podcast. Oh man, how much <laughs> do I want to release on this one, man? So my dad, my dad's been in banking for over, I think, thirty years. Okay. He he started out in banking as a as a young 
young early 20s and he stayed in it and he's like a uh, a vp for wells fargo works from home he's project manager okay you know handles a lot of back-end things for wells fargo okay my mother not my biological mother but my mother my stepmother is what i say i call her my mother because she really uh stepped up and and took care of me from 14 to 18 until now 14 to 35 right. <laughs> she's been there been a support pillar she she's an entrepreneur she she owns uh, her own interior design company Dang. and now she she works for the company she works for on point real estate and she's our accounts manager and manages all the the money and budgeting for the the hoas that we manage um, and she takes holds down the crib, you know, Keeping holds us down. Yeah, I mean yeah. that was the whole point. I wanted yes. to, I wanted to start a family business. And then my biological mother, I think she's working at Knoxbury Farm. Okay. In LA. Okay. I okay. Mean, like I said, that's maybe podcast number two. Yes. 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 <laughs> Where did you spend your formative years? High school. So I moved up to Seattle in '97. So I started high school here in Seattle at Kennedy Catholic. Okay. So I grew up. I grew up in LA. So essentially from what, 80, 80, I, I moved down to LA right after my grandmommy got killed. So 87, 88 till uh, 97, okay. I lived in LA. And that's, that's kind of the cloth where I got cut from, mm. I, like to, I like to say. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up with my grandparents in LA and well, I grew up with my biological mother and her ex-husband at the time and things really went south 80s baby man that crack epidemic hit real hard mm. um she was into all the other other things and so we we um were fortunate enough that she gave us give me and my sister to my grandparents and so we grew up with my grandparents in la i grew up in southgate california shout out to southgate mm. it's the barrio in south central so south central is People know it as primarily African-American, black neighborhood, but Southgate is this tiny little town of 100,000 people that's puro Latino. Okay, okay. Ain't number Mexicans, Salvadorians, Hondurans, like every, man, it's little Mexico, honestly. Okay. And then you have this, like, black and Mexican kid growing up trying to feel, figure his way out, which is also an interesting situation. But, uh, I'm, so I went to public school, had the pub, got that good old public education. In the 90s. Got that good old public education. Got the blacktop. Yeah. I was getting in fights almost almost every day because uh, I was black. Because a lot of you know uh, Mexicans and black folks in LA, they weren't vibing. Mm-hmm. I mean, crabs in the barrel mentality. Right. Right. And so I, I'm I'm I don't know that. I'm just I'm just whatever. I, I got, honestly I got dropped off here. Man, I just got dropped <laughs> off. And what's cold about is I thought I was Mexican growing up yeah. because my grandparents were Mexican. Our Christmases were tamales yeah. and rice and beans and. Right birthdays and quinceaneras and parties you know ranchero music so i was mexican man i had a pocket comb i combed my hair back like i was mexican so but when i would go out to school i'd get treated like i was black right Right. i didn't know that i was getting treated like that so i had a couple couple mexican homies man who looked after me because man cash just wanted to beat me up (laughs) just because i was black and then my dad was like look we're gonna try this catholic school thing out if you don't like it you know maybe look at mount rainier or something like that i got in i got in my first couple days at at Kennedy Catholic and I was like what the hell is this <laughs> Reprogram. the hallways were empty during class <laughs> you had to ask to go to the bathroom Orderly. right Right. I was tripping out people had like name brand things like, like I remember it was the first time I learned about polo 97 freshman year of high school every one of these little white kids had all this little the polo thing yeah. the, ho- the horse the dude and the horse I'm like who's this dude on the horse and why is yeah. everybody that's polo and I'm like Polo. I'm all, I'm used to Nike and she yeah, likes. Right. Like, so I got exposed. Tommy Hilfiger. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. Like, 
you know, but I went to school with these privileged privileged kids who had access. Yeah. So my lens then started to transition to like, well, how do I how do I first of all acknowledge that this is what it is and then how do I fit in this mold and because I don't have any of that right and so you know high school was interesting man but my mom always told me you know I was like a chameleon I'd blend in and that's what I did you know I just kind of blend in I didn't let it affect me in a way to where I felt like I had to be accepted I just mm. I just knew that like okay well I couldn't we I couldn't afford to get polo but you know, maybe I can get something close. Like, where's, where's the bootleg version? You know, from LA. Like, <laughs> that, that, that. where's the swap meet? Right, man? <laughs> right, right. Somebody, somebody got this unlocked. Somebody somewhere. got it. And so it was quite the transition, man, to go from uh, a very unstructured educational environment to a very structured environment. Right. What was your major? I was an English major at UW. Okay. You know? Okay. Why English? Because well, what I, did you want to do? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I love to read and write. It was just um, that's the creative in me in a way is I love to read and write I love poetry I was big in writing poetry and um, it just was English was a way for me to learn history just through a different way I, I just loved it I, I, I love to write and so you know getting towards graduation people would say oh well you're getting ready to graduate University of Washington are you going to be a teacher are you going to be a teacher everyone was trying to push me to be a teacher and at, at one point I was like yeah I'm going to take my GREs and get in this PhD program in education and you know be a professor that's mm -hmm. what I wanted to be actually mm -hmm. when I was a student mm -hmm. and then I take the GREs I did okay and then I find out that the the education program that I that I was going to apply to, they were like, "Oh, you need to take this European history class before you can apply to this program." And I was like, "I'm not learning about white people again." <laughs> like, I was like, "I've been taking a, I've been taking a European history class for the last literally for the last 16 years." Literally, it about? was one class, and it was a European history class at UW, and they wanted me to. And the educational department was like, "Take this class. We'll pay for it." We'll even pay for the class. Just take the class, and then we can we'll we'll, we'll start working on your your application to get you to the graduate program. And I was like, I'm sorry, that is just not interesting to me. Like your people are not interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's and so I said no to that. And this was after Simona and I did the monument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you speak about speak about that? Yeah, so we, so a good friend of mine, Simona Dasgupta, shout out. Yes. We were students, and the UW basically memorialized uh, Jim Owens, who used to be a football coach at UW, mm -hmm. and he was racist as all hell, outwardly racist, and he was racist against the black players, wouldn't let them play, just saying things to them, just terrible. And they built the monument for him mm -hmm. at UW. We got heated. And we're students. Like, are you serious? You're gonna memorialize racism? This is this is absurd. Yeah. And this is 2002, 2003. And so basically, I I decided that we needed our own monument. We needed something to dedicate and and represent who we are and the work we did as people of color. Mm -hmm. And so we went on a a rampage and lobbied the top administration and put together a plan to build. A monument that was dedicated to folks. Now, here's what's crazy: you look across the country, particularly to some of the most whitest universities, and UW is a white university. Oh, yeah. Don't get it twisted; they still have some issues, and they're probably the only one in the country that has a slave block <laughs> on their campus. Absolutely. And that's what I went after. But I had to frame the slave block in a way that the language was like, "This is a." a pillar to describe the commercialization and commoditization of all of us because we're all selling ourselves at yeah. some point man please that's a slave block man. <laughs> end of the day and you heard it here first <laughs> <laughs> so I, I will say like that 
that story is so um interesting to me and like my brain is just kind of like firing a whole bunch because I when I was at the UW I used to work as a ambassador for the Office of Minority Affairs and Diversity and we have to give these tours to <laughs> high school and middle school students and so our tours were always different from the regular university <laughs> tours because we would always stop by the block and talk mm -hmm. about the block to all these students and say like look this monument was created by students it was initiated by students here's what it means and here's like what you can do when you get here and so there at least for my tours and I've done dozens of them they all know about your that's monument they all know Thank about you. like who did it and that's amazing and it's it's really really powerful and mm. I remember I was trying to think of where I'd seen you before I think you had come to the first student walkout and we had all mm -hmm. gathered around the mm -hmm. monument yes. and you mm -hmm. had made like a little speech and so I remember I that there. yeah yes. just like Continuing on, like I used to write for the student newspaper, and so I wrote about the monument a whole okay, bunch. So it's okay. like, and so it's wow. like coming full circle for yeah, me to be next to the person who like created it. You that's know? amazing. Yes. I, we we didn't we never knew it would have that type of impact or reverberations, right? We weren't thinking people are going to do tours here. Yeah. And people are going to be able. We were thinking let's create a space to really, honestly, like respect the people of color who laid the foundation for us to be here and actually pay tuition and keep these walls going. Why are you ignoring us, man? Like we pay tuition too. Mm -hmm. And so to see it kind of like reverberate out is like, wow. And how many years later, yeah. you know, it's like, that's something we didn't, we weren't thinking like that. We were yeah. just like activists. Like we need, no, we need a monument. Yeah. And then all of these ripple effects. And that's just, that's man, that's so, so um, amazing Absolutely. to me. Was, you applied to the PhD program. Oh, I realized that I was an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. and and I I, I kind of just needed to explore that. All right. Uh, so I graduated, and at the, at that time, so it's funny. I, I worked for the Social Justice Fund right after graduation, and it was an unpaid internship for like six months. Uh, so I was still in the work, but I also had an application into Turner Construction to be a project engineer to build buildings. I didn't know what that meant. But I had a connection and they were like, you should apply. I can help you get a job. And, you know, after college, you're like, shoot, I just need to get, I just need some work. Like right. I, I worked at Turner Construction, got my hands on building a hundred plus million dollar buildings. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. The only brother in the office, you just get exposed to things. And I just kind of, I absorb, I observe a lot. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time observ observing. And I realized that I put, you know, I could put a business plan together to be a real estate developer. And I started researching what developers are, what they do, how much money they make. I mean, and the most important thing with me is the wealth that they build and and create. Absolutely. They create wealth, right? They take a eight million dollar piece of land and turn it into two hundred million. And I'm like, how the heck do you do that? And I was like, well, I know how to build these things. So I want to be on the other side. Of it. I want to be the ownership, and I want to provide other people an opportunity to own these things. Right. So I, that's that's kind of how. How it got started man and I, I just put a plan down a year ended I worked at Turner for three three and a half years I put I would go home after year one and I kind of figured out okay this is an interesting job I wrote my plan the second year I, I write it every day after work and so I'd go home after you know eight to five kind of day I go to my little my little condo on first hill 311 square feet and I'd pull up the laptop and a little Hennessy on the rocks, and I'd write my plan, and I wrote my business plan, tucked it away, recession hit, got laid off mm. in 2009, and my parents were like, what are you gonna do, are you gonna get a job? And I'm like, I'm gonna pull out this plan and put it to action, and they were like, so are you gonna get a job? Yeah. <laughs> like, the recession's hit, like, yeah. you know, like, what are you doing? You got a mortgage? Yeah. Yeah. And I pulled the plan out, and literally, I decided to uh, liquidate the peanuts I had in my little 401k, 
the the, the, the little bit that was left over from the recession is they took all the money from everybody mm. and then I used that to buy some really fancy and unnecessary business cards built the website and then and then honestly the rest of it I used to take people to, out to breakfast lunch and dinner because I was like I need to meet the top tier people in development mm. um, if I'm gonna do this I need to meet the best and now that's my one of my recommendations to uh, you know upcoming entrepreneurs or people thinking about it is like you have to if you're gonna if you're gonna start a business and or you're really passionate about your industry you gotta meet the top people in that industry if you want to perform at that level if not you know then don't waste your time mm. and so i was like these people are they're dictating what's happening they're dictating city blocks over and over and over and if that's something i want to do why am i going to waste my time meeting with somebody who's not doing that jim you know <laughs> and so i show up to their office and get to the uh you know top floor corner office overlooking puget sound and you know these guys are 30 years deep in the game and they just start dropping me with gems bah, 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 bah. and i'll be like wow i don't even know what to do with that info mm -hmm. and i just kept it up and those same people from 2009 to now are my friends and mentors i still have relationships with them and they're still having cranes in the sky yeah right it takes forever and you know like i'm black in a 70 percent white city trying to get a crane right shit ain't easy right you know right um but it doesn't mean i'm gonna stop right doesn't mean doesn't mean that i don't know what i'm doing it just means that there's some barriers and you know like I'm built for this, right. <laughs> you know. Right, like right, right, right. we gonna be here, you know. And it's it just at some point Seattle's gonna realize that they're gonna need other people who from other ethnic backgrounds that need to dictate what the city blocks look like. Absolutely. Otherwise, when you have the same people doing this, having the same cranes creating the same spaces, like this space should be downtown Seattle. Absolutely. You know, this seed, the seed space. You know, your, your podcast, and there's room for that. Right. But th why would they? They don't think like that, right? right? They don't come from where we come from. So in a way, I don't blame them. It's not a, it's not an ill-intentioned thing that they are excluding us from the participation. They just don't think about it. Right. They never invited us to the party before, so why would they think to extend the invite? Right. Right. And I'm like, boom, boom, boom. Hey, hello. I heard you having a party. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the music was loud. Yeah. yeah. Nah, it's opposite. The music be hella low. They be trying to, they be trying to keep Whistle it under the radar. <laughs> they didn't want to clink glasses. Clink. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so who was who was who were the first folks that you showed your business plans to? Man, the first people I showed my business plans to. Well, I told my parents about it. Mm -hmm. You know, they were the first out the gate. I was home. I'd spend my time writing my plan at home. I, I literally built the business at Cherry Street Cafe on First and Cherry and Cafe Vitas on uh, uh, Pike and, and Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. Pike and Tenth um, or something. My job, I wake up without no job. My job from like 7 to 8 p.m., I'd go with Cafe Vitas from 7 in the morning to 8 p.m. And I would sit upstairs, have enough for maybe two coffees a day or a coffee and a pastry. And I would just write, I'd write, write, write. I'd take a little break around noon. I'd walk outside Capitol Hill. I saw Spike Lee one time randomly. I was like, what? <laughs> and then I'd go back up and I'd write. The first people I showed my business plan to was uh, in the, S the SCORE office, the SBA people, mm -hmm. Small Business Administration downtown. Somebody was like, you got to go talk to the SCORE people. Free mentorship, basically. And mm -hmm. they'll look at your business plan for free. And I met this old 80-year-old white dude. He might have been 70 at the time. His name was Bernard. And, and they were like, yeah, we'll pair you up with someone similar to your business. And I was in SCORE's office twice a month. And I'd meet with Bernard, and he would just he would just poke holes in my plant, basically. And he's still someone I talk to to, the, to this day. So I went from score to getting kind of molding my plan. 
mind you, as I'm molding my plan, I have several applications out to law school. Because mm -hmm. the plan in my plan was to get an advanced degree. I knew if I was going to be a real estate developer or a business owner, and I wanted white America to take me seriously, I needed an advanced degree. Mm. Well, if it was a master's or a PhD or a JD, so I was back at like, I need to get educated. I, I applied to several schools, but I, I knew that I wanted to attend a school in a very economically depressed market because I wanted to buy my first investment property. And I couldn't do that in Seattle. They just didn't have enough ends, you know, for that. Right. And so I found Western Michigan Cooley Law School in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and their housing market was crazy depressed. And I was like, wow, I can actually buy an investment property here and I can go to law school. And that was the plan. And I learned so much, man. I mean, I lost tons of money uh, learning from that experience of buying an investment property while being a law student. I was renovating a two story duplex and I don't it's just it was crazy man mm -hmm. um, but basically what I did was and part of the plan was to leverage and use Obama's financial aid money at the time uh, to use that money to buy investment property because I didn't have the I didn't have the money right my parents don't come from ends either mm -hmm. so when I got my financial aid check I was like all right I'm going property shopping <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which is like I would say I don't know like who does that um, I mean, <laughs> lower lower interest rate though lower interest rate. right right mm -hmm. And so I flipped it, you know, but I ended up, we ended up, uh, I ended up partnering with a, a fellow law student who, um, we put our monies together and, and we found a duplex, renovated it, and we, we rented it out, mm. cash flowed it, and we split the cash flow. And that's really how I survived through law school. Mm. And I had to, I had to pay rent out there in Michigan. I had a condo here in Seattle and I had to pay half my mortgage because the rental market at that time, 2009, 10, 11 was terrible. Mm. So they're only paying half my mortgage. So I, was, I had to make sure I compensated for that and then pay my living expenses and law expenses, law school expenses in Grand, Grand Rapids. So it was it was a heavy, heavy, heavy boulder, man. Mm. You know, after you kind of come through that fire and I'm still here and the business is still running nine years later, it's like, yeah, man, I'm built for this. It, it, right. There's right. nothing you can throw at me that I won't at least find some type of solution to. Absolutely. It may hurt, but at the end of the day, as long as we are implementing the plan. I mean, my, my plan, my business plan is still, we're implementing it, Solid. right? It's Solid. And so it never, never stops. So it's one of those things. If you can go back, I guess, nine or 10 years ago mm. and give yourself a piece of advice, what piece of advice would you have given yourself? Would you give yourself? Piece of advice I'd give myself. I think uh, I would tell myself that like, and I, and, and I was, uh, I took, I took a lot of risk, right? I mean, it's heavy risk. You know, move to a city where no family, no nothing's at, um, and and take your final J money and buy investment property, mm. <laughs> have a mortgage back in Seattle. There was a lot of lot of risk, mm. and I would have told myself to take even more risk, mm -hmm. to be more about it, about it. You mm -hmm. know, because the amount of information you learn when you fail or when you stumble is you can't beat that experience, mm -hmm. and it just prepares you for your next chapter whenever the universe decides to open that up for you. Absolutely. And so for me, it's like, man, I, I wish I would have went harder in the paint. And but I'm looking back, I'm like, I don't know how much harder I could have went. <laughs> right, right. But there's always a there's always a precipice, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a, a point where we we all know where our breaking point is. <clears throat> and I always have strived to push myself to where it hurts, where I want to cry. And I remember falling down on my knees, you know, my first year in law school, literally coming home to an empty apartment because I had I couldn't afford any furniture because all my money's tied up in this investment property and paying for life back in Seattle. And I remember just coming back in my bedroom. 
had one bed. I literally had one bed. I had no furniture. And I and I looked in the mirror and I just kind of like, I just kind of just fell. I just kind of fell on my knees, man. I started crying. And I was like, this is this is heavy. And I remember looking up at myself and I was like, fuck that, keep going. And I wrote a check to myself at that time for a, for an amount that I won't state right now, you know, as my motivation. Yeah. Kind of a thing. So it's it's I would have told myself to go harder. Mm-hmm. You know, like make more mistakes, fail early. I'm still I'm still striving to to make mistakes. Um not 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 reckless mistakes, mm-hmm. but you know, mistakes where you're actually learning something. And it's in the mission and spirit of your goal or your mm-hmm. business or your nonprofit or whatever it is. So so for me, it's it's I've learned so much. I gave myself a you know, my own personal internship mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm still learning. I'm a student of life. So, you know, there's a million things I do wrong every day when it comes to running the business. You know, right. I, I, I wish I had my grandmommy here, right. you know, to tell me, like, do these things. Don't do these things. Make sure you, your books are in order before this this time period. I, you don't know all that. Right. You just kind of do it. Yeah. You know, talk about your space in Post Alley mm. and Tony Taj. Tony Taj, my guy, Jose Torres. Yes. Shout out. Yeah. So we so Tony Taj, a.k.a. Jose Torres. Shout out. Uh, another black Latino mm-hmm. business owner. He's been in the art game for probably 15, 20 years. We came across we crossed paths maybe 2014 ish, 2013, walked into his pop up gallery on First Avenue because he has some really dope art. Mm. And, you know, he, he came around the, the, the corner and introduced himself in his gallery. And I was like, what? There's a black Latino dude with a gallery downtown. Yeah immediately was like drawn in to like okay i need to learn your hustle i need to explore and we've been friends uh, ever since that time and just really worked on thinking about how we're going to work together and so we ended up you know how many four years later getting a space together where we uh he had all his artwork and we did the real estate and we collaborated in our space and post alley you know I do things unconventional and I didn't want a boring real estate office and I thought it'd be really cool to have some really dope urban art in our office to engage who we're bringing in. And so we partnered that way and you know we we've since grown and gotten an office across the way and his his gallery now is all art. And then our space is real estate but with his art up and we have a couple other artists who put some work up. And so really we uh we look out for each other. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like going to a to the gym by yourself if you don't have a spotter it's tough to know how much you can maximize mm-hmm. you know how much weight you can lift and having another you know business owner of color that close it's just it's comforting and Absolutely. he pushes me i push him and he gives me other things to think about he's a few years older um so it's 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 been a great partnership where we just basically parlay art activism real estate you know all in post alley so we're really we call it a, what do we call it we call it alley what uh silicon alley is what we've been calling uh our post alley because he and he's heavy into the tech game absolutely he's heavy into the tech game tech and art and then we do real estate so if we really want to create post alley as a space where folks of color can kind of pop in and and either sit down do some work Mm. or hold some meetings and think about taking over the city absolutely (laughs) absolutely you know what's next What's next? It's always something next, right? Uh, you know, like from a work perspective, we have some really, really great projects from a development perspective that are going to, I think, yield some really great community benefits. And so we, we're looking at some multifamily housing and mixed use projects in South Seattle, particularly. We, we really want to open up our office space to community folks and, and other businesses who want to collaborate or just need a space to meet. 
Um, that way we can really generate a lot of movement amongst other people's dreams and ambitions. And we need we need more business owners of color. We need more entrepreneurs. Um, and if, if our space, our office space can be, uh, I guess, an example of what happens when you take a risk, then I'm hoping folks can realize that they can also take that risk. Okay. And so the, the next step is really just to continue doing what we're doing. Don't switch. We're not I'm not switching the playbook. I'm not flipping the script. This was we stick to the plan. Stick to the script. Yes, trust and the process. Trust the process. Trust the process. Oh, it's funny. I, I was just working on a newsletter, and I started a newsletter with trust the process. Yeah. I also thinking about the flip side of that. About how do I say how do how do we say that to the people who are homeless in Seattle? Just trust the process. Yeah. Like that doesn't. I, what yeah. what it means to me is different to someone living on the streets Absolutely. and so trusting the process is one half and then the other half is how do we get engaged in the process so mm-hmm. we can trust it mm-hmm. you know and 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 so that's that's what i'm hoping to do and one the last thing or you know to wrap up is is i've been fortunate enough to be placed i would i call it the middle of the onion in seattle mm-hmm. uh, as an executive board member for the seattle chamber and you know i'm sitting sitting in these monthly board meetings with you know, Amazon's number two, number three, number four guy, you know, the global real estate guy and all the C-level executives from the top companies in, in, in the state, Microsoft, mm-hmm. Boeing, you know, just all down the line, yeah. you know, and I'm in this space. I'm probably the youngest, definitely the blackest, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and not even nowhere near their financial success as far as the business is concerned. Right. And sitting in that space has really, really opened my eyes into you know how they how Seattle gets kept the way it is. Mm. I'm I'm hoping I can open up a few doors, and there's people who are open. They're, they're they're ready for it. They're like they just need they just need a little bit of help, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm in this really interesting position where, you know, one of my hats as an as a young executive. I don't call myself a young professional. I'm a young executive because I operate on an executive level. That's it. Is is how how do I leverage this really powerful space to where we get more folks of color. Um, involved and their voices heard so it's 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 one of those things man when i think about what's next it's about just you know like sticking to the script you know just execute on the plan absolutely hopefully we will you know we'll grow from there absolutely this is awesome how how can people stay in touch i'm not hard to find on the web social media at jebediah on the twitter at jebediah on the social on the uh, instagram J-A-E-B-A-D-I-A-H Facebook all of that reach out I, I don't make it hard for people to find me but I will say this there will become a time there will be a time that I'm waiting for and working for where I'm going to be deactivating all my accounts <laughs> and the only thing I'm going to have is my Twitter because I love me some Twitter but uh, the whole point is to get out there as much as possible so people can see the work we're doing Absolutely. <clears throat> and then we're going to get to a point where I don't really need that. I, don't, I don't really need that Absolutely. anymore yeah. I just talk shit to Donald Trump over Twitter Right. That's the only thing I'll keep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but we're on the social, man, at yes. Jebediah. That's for sure. Or at All Point Real Estate, On Point NW um, on Instagram and Twitter. That's what's up. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks. it, man. If you liked what you heard, be sure to donate so we can keep going. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. 
No Blueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. No Blueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Mayawa Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com. <laughs>